0: Easter is a, a real important time to the church. It's an important time for a lot of people, it's, but it's a real strange time for me as a pastor because, um, well, I don't know any other way to say it than just come out and say it. It's a day where the rest of the world acts like Jesus is alive. Thank God he's alive for us every day. Amen. Amen it's it's uh i'm the ultimate creature of habit i go to a couple of different places to eat and, and that's it i'll go there over and over again uh the places i go the waitresses don't even offer me menus they know i know and uh they know that i have certain things that i always get that type of thing so it's in in places that i go and and uh this last week going to lunch and and stuff like that the the, the people that are there they know me they know what i do and and so i get questions like have you got your easter sermon ready Texting and, and emailing and, and uh, contacting other pastors around the country that 's their question. Have you got your Easter sermon ready and stuff like this and and, and uh, what's an Easter sermon really I mean what 's an Easter sermon it's testifying that Jesus is alive. I do that every time we come. so holidays are kind of tough for me. everybody's expecting you to be your best and have your polished sermon and the, you know the, the one you 've been working on forever. And I, the reason I'm talking a little bit long right now. Is I'm looking for God to give me something. <laughs> but don't worry just in case. I watched all the TV preachers this morning. And I got their Easter sermons. <laughs> Folks I'm not going to be any different today. Than I am any other time. I am who I am. Like that or not. And there's more knots than likes. But we are who we are amen one of the things that the lord really um the book of john is 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 precious to me because it i've found in my own life and my own experience that oftentimes it's a very difficult thing to see and recognize god at work while he's doing something but after the fact you turn around and you look at what god said and the things that he did behind the scenes and you see the supernatural aspect of everything that took place well the book of john is that way for me the Book of John was the last of the four Gospels. John wrote it when he was probably in his 80s. This would have been maybe uh, 20 to 30 years after both Peter and Paul have been martyred. It's the last of the, uh, the last of the Gospels, and and John seems to fill in some blanks that them, some of the rest of us, some of the other Gospel writers, don't tell us about. John gives us more information about the last days of Jesus than anybody else. And it's almost like John is looking back toward the end of his life. He's looking back. By the way, most, uh, most Bible scholars agree that John was a, a young man, maybe even in his teens, when he walked with Jesus. And so the experiences that he had and the things that he did with the Lord and the things that he saw, he was one of, one of the Lord's favorites. He's identified in the Scripture as the one that Jesus loved. By the way, he's the one that calls himself that. I kind of like that. Really, I, I think that should be a pattern for us all. I'm the one that Jesus loves now. And uh, so anyway, I don't know what that means for the rest of you, but that works for me, you know. But anyway, he's uh, he was certainly one of Jesus' inner circle. He was one of the ones that Jesus took with him when he went to pray. And and uh, the when, when he wouldn't take anybody else, like the raising of Jairus' daughter, when he wouldn't take anybody else, he took Peter, James, and John. So John has witnessed things and and been a witness to things that that even some of the other disciples never saw. So now John, toward the end of his life, is looking back at things. And he's telling us things that he considers to be most important. You know as well as I do that when you look back at things in your life, you see them with a greater clarity than you would have been able to relate to them if you were telling the story at the time. I think the Holy Ghost enables John to do exactly the same thing in the Gospel that he writes. Now, in John chapter 14, I saw a verse of Scripture this week that I have never seen before. And I can't tell you how many thousands of times I've read the book of John, especially the 14th chapter. But I saw a verse of Scripture there that I have never seen before, and I just can't seem to get away from it. I don't know if it's an Easter sermon or not, but I can't get away from it. John starts off telling us about what happened at the Last Supper. Jesus is, uh, has, has had the, 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 the Passover supper with his disciples. Judas has already gone out. And uh, and and to to set in motion the betrayal incidents and events and and uh, things along those lines, and then Jesus starts talking to his disciples after Judas is gone. Jesus starts talking to his disciples about that which is to come in a way that he never spoke to them before. He talks to him about his death. He talks to him about his resurrection. He talks to him about the things that they're going to do following his resurrection. He tells him about the sorrow that they're going to to suffer during the time between his death and his, his crucifixion and his, uh, and his resurrection. I mean, he speaks more plainly to them before than th- at this point in time than he ever has before. And it's John telling us, giving us eyewitness testimony, remembrance of things with the understanding that he has now of having walked with the Lord for almost 50 or 60 years. Well, more than 50 years, maybe 60 or such. Maybe even more than that. So he tells, we know the scriptures that he starts in John chapter 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. The word mansions just means abiding places. It does not mean, pl- it doesn't mean houses. I grew up in the in the Baptist church, and and I don't know if they ever taught this or not, but they certainly left me with the impression that the reason Jesus hadn't come back yet is because he hadn't finished building everybody's house. God makes the heavens and the earth in six days, but he's been, Jesus has been working for thousands of years building houses. I guess that's why he was a carpenter here on the earth. I you know, I. I that's not what it means, folks. It means abiding places. It's the same word that's used over in verse 23 where Jesus said, if a man love me, he will keep my words. That means obey my words. That's how you can tell who does, by the way. It's not just a matter of claiming to be a Christian. Jesus said, if a man loves me, he's the one that's keeping my words. Folks, there's a big difference in God's idea of what Christianity is and the, world, and, and the church's idea of what Christianity is. Okay, Uh, If a man love me, he will keep or obey my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That's the same word translated mansions in verse 1 or verse 2. We will come and make our abode with him. He's not talking about a place in heaven. He's talking about a place of relationship with God. Let's keep reading verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions or abiding places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Notice this phrase, that where I am, there you may be also. He didn't say that where I'm going, you'll be. See, if Jesus was building mansions in heaven, then he would say that where I'm going, you can be there too. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm making a place for you with God. Relationship. The place he's talking about is relationship. I'm making a place for you with God so that where I am right now, my relationship with God, you can have the same relationship. And then he continues and he says, and whether I go, verse 4, and whether or where I go, you know, and the way you know. Then Thomas speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You give us too much credit, Lord. We're not smart enough to know this stuff. Then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. The next several verses, he spends some, uh, some effort at least trying to identify that he's going to his Father and that just as his Father has been in him and working in him all the time that he's been here on the earth, he's going to return to his Father. And that blows the disciples' minds. Jesus explains the, the, the way that they can know that he was in the Father were by the words that he said... He said, the words that I speak unto you, they're not of myself, they're of my father. So we should be able to recognize God by words. Jesus said so. And then the second thing he he said was, the works that I do, I don't do of myself, I do them of my father. So we should be able to recognize God by words and works. Then Jesus goes even further and he says, believe me that, uh, that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. He that believeth in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. And he says he'll do them by the work of the Holy Spirit. I'll give you another comforter. He's saying you can do the same works. Well, that would indicate to me that we're going to be able to speak the same words too, shouldn't we? Yeah, that's part of the relationship, part of the place in God that we can have that jesus is going to prepare for us we know he prepared that through his resurrect through his uh, death burial and resurrection then it says in verse 18 now start reading with me in verse 18 he says i will not leave you comfortless i will come unto you now he's talking about to the, by the holy ghost but he's also talking about returning to them himself he said yet a little while verse 19 and the world sees me no more he's talking about when he's going to be dead and buried Just a little longer, and the world won't be able to see me anymore. But you see me. You'll be able to see me. He's talking about his resurrection. He's talking about his return. And then he says, notice this phrase in the last part of verse 19. He says, because I live, you shall live also. Verse 20, at that day, in the day when you live too. At that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. Now think about what Jesus is saying. I've never seen that before. Again, I can't tell you how many thousands of times I've read John 14. But I've never seen that verse of Scripture before. And notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you should know that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me by the words that I speak. You should know that the Father is in me, and that I'm in him by the works that I do. But there's coming a day where it won't just be the works, or the words, it won't just be the works that convince you. The thing that's really going to convince you is the life that is in you. That's what you're going to know for sure. Then he starts talking about love. John's the one that also wrote to the church. 1 John chapter 3, I believe it is. He says, we know that we passed from death to life. How? Because we love the brethren. He's talking about the life of God on the inside of us. Jesus... Is identifying that the one main way that we can know that he is of God and has gone back to God is because of the life that he makes available to you and me. Folks, this is not a natural life, these guys are already alive. He's talking about a spiritual life. He's talking about eternal life. It's a word that's used every time that Jesus uses this word. It's a specific and separate word. It means it, the Greek word. I don't know if I'm saying it right. It's uh, spelled Z-O-E. It's uh, I think you say it's Zoe. It's always used to identify the life of God. It's talking about a quality of life that you can't experience any other way. Now, then John tells us some things about Jesus after his resurrection. If you were John, what would you want other people to know? I mean, you were the eyewitness. You're 80 years old at this point in time. Or roughly 80 years old, maybe even older than that. We know that John lived into his 90s. We have record of that. We know that they tried to kill him and couldn't. They tried to boil him in oil and he wouldn't die. The outstanding characteristic of John's life from his writings. We don't know much about him from the time that Jesus was, was crucified and raised from the dead except the things that he wrote. And the the one outstanding thing that he writes about is the love of God. The one key factor that he mentions in everything that he writes, every bit of information that he gives us in his letters to the church is the love of God. Abiding in the love of God. Walking in the love of God. Allowing the love of God to make you a conqueror and a victor in life. Now, if you're writing back toward the end of your life wanting to make sure that everybody understands Jesus who you've been preaching and testifying of all of your life what are you going to want people to know? He gives us three examples three specific times after Jesus was raised from the dead that he appeared to his disciples three now the other writers say that during a period or over a period of 40 days Jesus was with the disciples John says he came and went now I don't believe for a minute That these three things that he tells us about, that John tells us about, are the only times that Jesus appeared to the disciples during those 40 days. That wouldn't make sense. That wouldn't line up with what the others are saying. But John identifies and, and, and picks out three specific events. Let's look at those. What did John consider to be most important for us to know about Jesus after his resurrection? John chapter 20. Tells us about Jesus on the day that he was raised from the dead. Interesting, you know, Easter for us is a holiday. It's a special time. It's a, it's a time where people focus on the, uh, the risen Savior and, and, and things like that. And that's great. I mean, there's, you know, there's, well, I, I don't know. What am I trying to say? It's a, it's a good thing. John looked at Easter at a different thing. It was the day that he was born again. It was the day where he received this life of God. It was the day where everything that Jesus talked about came to reality for him. More important than being there when Jesus turned the water into wine. More important than being there when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. More important than being there when Jesus healed the sick. More important than Jesus being there, uh, than being with Jesus when Jesus walked on the water. This is the day that John is born again. Easter meant something to these guys. It was the day when the life of God was given to them. It tells us about how that Jesus was raised from the dead. It says that he saw Mary in the garden of Gethsemane. She's looking for him. Apparently, Jesus looked differently after he was raised from the dead than before he went to the cross. Because nobody recognized him. Nobody recognized him. He's been raised from the dead, but he hasn't yet ascended to the Father. Because he says to Mary in John chapter 20... He called her by name in verse 16. He says to her, Mary, and she turns herself and says unto him, Rabboni, which means master. And Jesus said unto her, touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my father. Here's why you can't touch me, Mary. I haven't been to God yet. Well, where have you been, Jesus? You've been dead for three days. You've been buried. They She came. She, along with some others, Mary Jesus' mother, was also with her when they came to pre- finish, to finish his, his burial process, the embalming process, if you will, the mummification process, apparently that, that the Israelites learned from the Jews. I, um, boy, I messed that up. That the Jews learned from the Egyptians when they were in bondage in Egypt. That was the process of embalming, the process of burial that they were going to complete. He's been gone for three days. Well, where have you been? He hadn't been in heaven. Where's he been? The Bible says... He went and descended into the lower parts of the earth. Descended into the lower parts of the earth. Parts is plural, isn't it? Well, you can't just say that Jesus went to paradise. Because that would just be a part. Jesus had to go to hell too. I know that's controversial in the body of Christ. Some people say, well, how can you possibly say that Jesus went to hell? Easy. Because that's where you would have gone if you died without him. And except that he went where you would have gone, he couldn't have be been your substitute. I have a lot of questions about this, this issue and this subject that, that aren't answered. But that question right there satisfies me. I wouldn't have gone to paradise, would you? No. I would have gone to hell as a sinner. And Jesus paid the price for me. That means he had to pay the price of hell, spiritual death. So Jesus has has been in the the lower parts of the earth for three days. He is now coming back to the earth, picks up his body and is about to go to his father. But he stops and says hello to Mary first. But he says, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Realize, folks, all of heaven stood in the balance at that moment. If she had touched him, she would have corrupted the purified Savior. He said, don't touch me, Mary. Because I'm not yet ascended to my father. Now notice what else he says. He says, I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father. I'm now going to my father. And to your father. He's yours now just as much as he is mine. To my God and to your God. He's just as much your father as he's my father now. He's just as much your God as he is my God now. So Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. I'm sure that got a mixed reaction from the group. Mary, have you been dipping into the wine? Is this grief talking? Is this real? What would you think? Here's the first event that John tells us about after Jesus was raised. He said, then the same day, later on the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, why? for fear of the Jews. These guys are afraid and so they're hiding behind closed doors. That's when Jesus came and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed them unto them his hands and his side, then were his disciples glad when they saw the Lord. He's not saying, Don't touch me anymore. He's saying, Look. See this hole in my wrist? That's where they put the nail in. See this hole in the side? That's where they stuck stuck me and jabbed me with the spear. See, look at it. Giving him a chance to examine him. Not like before when he said to Mary, don't touch me, I haven't been to the Father yet. So what does that mean? It means he's already been there. It means he's been there now, he's returning. Now things are different. Now he's gone to prepare the place for them. Just like John said earlier in John 14. I go and prepare a place for you. There's a place of relationship available for you now that there wasn't before. So what does he say? He breathes on them and says, receive you the Holy Ghost. He breathes on them and says, receive you the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. I mean, I know this seems simple, but you need to consider it. And that is, did they get something or not? If they did not, then Jesus has deceived them. Because he's breathing on them saying, receive the Holy Ghost. Wouldn't that indicate to you if it was you that he was doing it to? Wouldn't that indicate to you that something is going to happen or something is going to be given to you? Well, of course. Of course. What's Jesus do? Breathe on him. says, receive the Holy Ghost. and says, na 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 na. Nah. Just kidding. Uh-uh. No, he gives him something. It's the whole reason that he went to the cross. Can you imagine the joy that Jesus had at that moment in time where he's finally able to say to his disciples, this is the whole purpose. This is what I was telling you before. In that day, because I live, you'll live too. And then you'll know that I went to the Father. So he breathes on him and says, receive the Holy Ghost. Then he tells them what this receiving the Holy Ghost is all about or what it's connected to. He said, whosoever sins you remit, they're remitted. Whosoever sins you retain, they're retained. First sentence, first statement that he makes. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto him. He's saying, receive the Holy Ghost in connection with the remission of sins. It's salvation, folks. This is where they're born again. And John tells us this more clearly than any of the other gospel writers. Why? Because this is when John was born again. You think he didn't know? Of course he knew. That's why he's telling us about it. Except that John writes the story we wouldn't know. The church would still be in the same quandary for thousands of years that many are anyway. Wondering what is there to this Holy Ghost stuff? What is there to this receiving the Holy Spirit? John tells us it's a very separate and unique experience from the Acts 2 experience where they were filled. Because this is the same group that received the Holy Spirit that in Acts chapter 2, 40 days later, are then filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak with other tongues. John, by the way, is the one that tells us that there's a dual working of the Holy Spirit. He shall be in you, he shall be with you, and shall be in you. John's the one that's telling us. John's the one that look, is looking back. Now think about it. If John had just written from the, an eyewitness testimony from the time that it happened, would he have an understanding of how this works? Would he have an understanding of how people would misunderstand the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ? Would he have a greater, would he have a, uh, uh, the understanding that we now see of how people take the scriptures and, and butcher them to come up with their own ideas and their own doctrines rather than what Jesus said? I love the book of John. It's John showing us more from our point of view than from theirs. So he said, whosoever sins you remit, they're remitted unto them. Whosoever sins you retain, they're retained. Now, is he saying we have the power to forgive sins or to hold sins against people? Nope. He's saying based on their willingness to receive. Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can say your sins are remitted or forgiven. Or if you reject, your sins are retained. You'll have to answer for them for yourself. And folks, that's what Jesus is about. Bible says some men's sins go before them. Other men's sins follow after Whose sins go before? The ones that accept Jesus as the Lord of their lives. Whose sins follow after? The ones that reject Jesus. Then they get to answer for themselves. Folks, pick category A. Nobody wants to answer for themselves, whether they know it or not. Whosoever sins you, remitted unto the, you remit. they are remitted unto them. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Here's the second event. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples said, therefore, unto him, we have seen the Lord. Now, folks, I want you to understand, uh, they have to be saved. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, he said that salvation depends on two things. believing in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, number one. Number two, confessing him as Lord. These guys have done both. They're calling him Lord. And they certainly believe that he's raised from the dead. Because Jesus is there. He's showing them his hands. He's showing them his side. They have met the qualifications for salvation. If they were not saved. Then we're going to have to rip Romans chapter 12. Or Romans chapter 10. Out of the Bible. Because Paul lied to us. They have to be saved. Absolutely have to be. They said we've seen the Lord. He's raised from the dead. And he's Lord. But Thomas said except I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. He didn't say, I can't believe. He says I won't. I will not believe. So here's the second event. Then eight days later, eight days later, his disciples were within and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Now it doesn't say that that the doors are shut because they're still afraid of the Jews. It just says they're in a place where they're all together. They still remember Jesus' admonition, don't leave Jerusalem until you be filled with the spirit of power. Power will come on you after the Holy Ghost is, is fallen. He doesn't fall until the day of Pentecost. That's 40 days after Jesus was raised from the dead, or 40, literally 47. So now they're still in a place where they're together, and Thomas is with them this time, and Jesus appears and says, peace be unto you. Immediately goes to Thomas immediately goes to Thomas. Please recognize this is from John's point of view. John is not trying to throw off on Thomas because Thomas is long since dead. He's not trying to slander or malign Thomas in any way. He's trying to show us the difference between a willingness to believe and a refusal to believe. Jesus goes immediately to Thomas and says, Thomas, reach hither your finger and behold my hands, and reach hither your hand and thrust it in my side, and be not faithless. But believing. Folks, please understand that Jesus gives you the definition for being faithless or without faith. Without faith is not an inability to believe, without faith is a refusal to believe. Thomas says, except I touch his hands, touch the print of the nails, put my finger in it, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is saying, I've got to see something. I've got got to have physical evidence before I choose to believe. Jesus says that's being faithless. Jesus says that to, re, to require physical evidence before you believe is to be without faith. Thomas says. He answers and says unto him, my Lord and my God. What happens to him? Now he's born again. He believes Jesus is raised from the dead and he confesses Jesus as his Lord. Then Jesus says, Thomas, because you have seen me and thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Notice he does not say there is any blessing whatsoever attached to seeing and then believing. He says there is no blessing attached whatsoever to the requirement of seeing something before you believe. He says the blessing belongs to those that have not seen but choose to believe the truth. John then says Jesus did many other things. In the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. He's saying I'm just giving you an overview. I'm just telling you of the important ones the Holy Spirit has prompted me to tell you about. But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. Please notice that phrase. And that believing you might have life. And that believing you might have life. How does life come? How does this life that Jesus said would prove to you that he's from the Father. And went back unto him. What did he say the requirement for that life would be? Believing. Then, chapter 21, uh, John tells us about the third event. John says that Jesus showed himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee, by the way. And here's how it happened there was Simon Peter and Thomas, uh, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Canaan, and the sons of Zebedee, that's uh, James and John, and two of his other disciples. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. They said unto him, well, we'll go with you. Then they went forth and entered into a ship, and that uh, and all night they caught nothing. But when morning was come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, children, have you any meat? And they said, no. And Jesus said, cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find or you shall catch. That's their problem. They've been fishing on the left side of the boat. Everybody knows you can't catch fish on the left side of the boat. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it in for the multitude of the fishes. Therefore, the the disciple whom Jesus loved, John's talking about himself. I love this. Don't you know this dug into Peter? Of course, Peter's dead by the time he writes this, so John may be getting away with it. I'm not sure how that worked. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he didn't figure it out for himself, John's saying. He girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. They needed two boats to get this catch of fish in. In other words, folks, I'm so glad that Jesus caused a multiple uh, uh, a miracle of catch of fishes. How do I say this? A fishes catch. I'm glad that Jesus did the same miracle of catching fish after he was raised again from the dead. He's not through with miracles of business, uh, you know, blessings and prosperity and increase. That stuff didn't end when Jesus went to the cross. It wasn't Jesus just proving that he was the son of God. That's what God does when Jesus shows up. Let Jesus show up in your business and watch the same thing happen to you, whether it's fish or or whatever it is. So as soon as they came to land, they saw a fire of coals there and a fish laid thereon and bread. By the way, Jesus cooked fish while the fish were still in the net. I have no idea how he got the fish that he's cooking. The Bible doesn't say so. They just get there and see the fish on the fire. They're dragging a net full of fish. I think it says there's 153 fish in the net when they finally count them. But Jesus has already got food on the table there. Jesus said unto them, bring ye of the fish which you have caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of great fishes, 150 and three for all uh, and for all there were so many, yet not was that was not the net broken. And Jesus said unto them, come and dine. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? He still got to look different. They're not saying, wow, we recognize you. They're, apparently they're thinking, you don't look the same, but it's got to be you. Folks, here's why the Bible keeps telling us that. There had to be something more than them just seeing physically that they believed. Because he looks different. Jesus identifies himself to them the first time by saying, look at my hands. Here's the nail holes. Here's my side where they thrust the the spear into my side. You guys were there when they did this stuff, or some of this stuff at least. You know this has got to be me. They're not looking at him and saying, wow, Jesus, you look so good for being dead for three days. Now they get to shore and they see Jesus and they're looking at him and they're saying, I don't dare ask him if it's really him. It's got to be him. I mean, who else is it that gives us, you know, full nets of fish? It's got to be him. But something about him is different. It's not and never was the physical seeing of the eye that caused them to believe. Any more than it is with you. See, it's easy for us to say, well, if it had been us, sure, we'd have believed too. Not so. They had to go beyond something that they just saw. Because Jesus didn't look the same. The resurrected Jesus didn't look exactly the same as the one that went to the cross. The Bible's telling us this. It's pointing it out to us. So nobody dared ask him. They knew it was him. Even though he must not have looked the same. Then Jesus came and took bread and gave them and fish likewise. This is now the third time. Three times, three events that John tells us about, looking back and remembering the resurrection of Jesus. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So that when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou more lovest thou me more than these. Now stop and think about what this means to Peter. It's only been a little while ago. We don't know exactly how long. But certainly within a week or two that Peter has denied Jesus three times after saying, Jesus, I will never deny you. I don't care what they do. If they take your life, they can take mine too. No matter what they threaten you with, no matter what they try to do that you're telling us about, I will not leave you. I'll stick with you to the end. And Jesus looks at him and says, before morning, you're going to deny me three times. Now, Jesus is questioning Peter. First evidence that we have, we don't know for sure, but it's the first time that we have any, any specific information about what's happened in the interaction and the conversations that they've had together. This may be the first time that he's really had a, a, a hard hard talk with Peter since that time. First thing Jesus says. Peter, do you love me more than these? Now who's the these he's talking about? The other disciples. Peter, you said you love me more than anybody else. You'd go to the cross. You'd go to death with me. And you bailed out on that pretty quick. But do you love me more than the others? Well, can't you imagine the heart wrench that Peter experiences at this moment? But he answers, and he says, yea, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus said unto him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Do you really love me, Peter? Man, this has got to be digging into Peter. Would be me. Before I said anything about loving him, I'd be saying, yeah, and about that denying you stuff. Listen, can we work this out? I'm so sorry about that. But he asked him the second time, do you love me? And he says, yea, Lord, you know that I love you. And then he said unto him, feed my sheep. Then he said unto him the third time. Three denials, three questions. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. See, folks, I see the denial in that. You judge it for yourself. But I just know how bad I feel when I'm messed up and don't keep my commitments to God. I can't imagine how Peter would have escaped the remembrance of what happened with him. So Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Then he tells Peter something about his end. We won't go into that right now. Although John is uh, writing after Peter has already been crucified. John is writing and telling the church Jesus told him ahead of time. He's the only one that gives this information. Jesus told him ahead of time the kind of death that he would die. He goes even further and he says, because of what Jesus said to me, that what's it to you, Peter, if John's alive when I come back? He said, some people are saying that I'm going to live till Jesus returns. But that's not what he said. John's approaching the end of his life. So he's trying to prepare people again. He's trying to tell people, look, here's how it really happened. Again, back to the third event where Jesus appears to his disciples. He says to Peter, first event, born again. Second event. Thomas, Jesus explains and shows the difference between seeing and believing and believing without seeing. The third event, take care of others by bringing them the same life you have. Those are the three things that John saw most important to fill in the blanks and give us information about. Why? Because, folks, everything is about life. Jesus said earlier in his ministry, he said, I am come that you might have life And have it more abundantly. He defines what that life is. He says as the father has life in himself. So is he given the son. Me. Jesus. The son. That same life. And that's what I came to bring you. Folks that's a quality of life. It's a quality of life. That that quality is what jesus said to his disciples that had seen every miracle that he did that had heard every word that he preached that had seen and 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 witnessed everything that jesus did and how he operated against the disciples or the uh, the pharisees excuse me against the pharisees when they tried to kill him and wanted to do terrible things to him and uh, and tried to stone him and different things like that they witnessed jesus do miracles they witnessed him walk on the water they witnessed him supersede the laws of nature they witnessed him uh slip out of the traps, of the smartest people, the, the, the elite of the day. And Jesus said, yet the most important thing for you that will cause you to know is life. Is life. I can't relate to people that don't know if they're saved or not. I was there when I got born again, weren't you? I know something happened. I was six years old and i know something happened i'll never forget that i think that's what john looks back to on the day that jesus was raised from the dead that was the day when he was born again how do you deny that that life occurred i know we cover it up sometimes i know we go our own way i know we operate according to our own desires and our own flesh and and our own plans and whatever the case might be i know we do our own thing but how do you deny life How do we minimize? How does the modern day church minimize the life of God to such a degree? That you can't tell the difference between those that have it and those that don't through their lifestyle. I'm just simple enough to believe that that's not what Jesus died for. No, instead Jesus died for a church that would do the same works that he did. Jesus died for a people that would operate in that life to the same degree that he did. Use the, uh, the, the availability and the power of the Holy Ghost to perform the same miraculous works as evidence. That he is indeed risen from the dead. It's not too late. No matter how we've messed up. That's one thing I love about the story with Peter. You can't get any worse than what Peter did. Peter flat out denied him, cursed him. And denied that he was ever with him or associated with him. Yet he's the very one that Jesus went to and asked the same question three times. Do you really love me, Peter? If you do, here's how you show it. Give that life to other people. Provide that same life to others. Folks, there's nothing greater than that life. It's everything Jesus said he came to give us. It's the whole reason Jesus healed the sick. It's Because he knew he would make a place for us to have that life. It's the reason Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. To show that God's nature, his character, the character and the nature of the life of God that Jesus came to bring us, provides for us physically. He superseded the laws of nature and walked on the water when it was necessary So that it would be an evidence to us that the life of God is not limited by this natural world in any way. That's why Jesus said, All things are possible to him that believes, because that belief is based on life. You believe God based on the life that Jesus came to give you, and nothing is impossible. I don't care who's saying what. Yeah, but the banker said it's too late. I'm glad it was just the banker that said that. Because God said nothing is impossible. Yeah, but the doctor said that there's nothing more they can do. With this sickness that's come against my body. I'm glad it was just the doctor that said that. Because Jesus said nothing is impossible to him that believes. Folks, it's all based on life. We sometimes bless our heart as children. We get puffed up a little bit by saying, well, we believe God for this. Or we believe God for that. Folks, we had the privilege... To experience life. That's what our believing amounts to. We had the privilege. To experience life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me please. It had never occurred to me. That Easter was the day that John was was born again. Never had occurred to me. It's so simple. But I just never thought of it like that. Easter could be the day where you're born again too. Jesus came to give you the same life he came to give them. And it comes the same way just simply by believing. Folks, the miraculous is just as available today as it was when Jesus was here on the earth. The miracle of the new birth is just as as available now Is it was when Jesus was first raised from the dead? There's nothing that God won't do for his children if they'll simply believe. But the key is to become a child. That believing, they might have life. If you're here this morning and you don't know if you're born again, maybe you already know that you're not. Or maybe you're in a place where, well, I don't know, Pastor Mike. You know, used to go to church with my parents. Or I I prayed one time, but I I just don't know where I am right now. Whatever the case is, if you know that you're not saved or you don't know for sure that you are, there's no better time than right now to make sure. And we're going to do exactly what the Bible says. We're going to give you the opportunity to choose to believe. By choice, you will confess that you believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. Yeah, but how do we know? The only evidence you have is the same evidence that the rest of us had. And that is the Bible says so. Secondly, we'll lead you into a confession in prayer to make Jesus the Lord of your life. The Bible says that's all it takes for your life to change of one that is on the road to destruction to one that is filled with life and blessings. Jesus died for you. And if you were the only one that needed eternal life, he still would have died. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning you would say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Or I want to make sure that Jesus is the Lord of my life. I'm going to ask you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just lift your hand right where you are. By lifting your hand, you're asking for prayer. You're just saying, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to know that I know that I know. Yeah, thank you. Yes, thank you. Okay, once you put it up, you can put it right back down once we see you. Are there others? Pray for me, Pastor Mike. I've gone my own way long enough. Yes, there's another. I've gone my own way long enough. I know the results of trying to go your own way. It doesn't work. But now I surrender. I'll choose to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I'll choose to follow his plan and his path instead of my own. Are there others? Pray for me, Pastor Mike. Yes, thank you, sir. We'll wait just a moment. I want to give everybody a chance to make a decision. Yes, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. All right, I have another invitation. Maybe you know at one time you were saved but you've gone your own way. You're like the prodigal son that the Bible speaks of. It doesn't mean that you've lost your relationship with God. It means through sin and wrongdoing, you've lost your fellowship with God. That fellowship can, that broken fellowship can be restored. So if you're here this morning, we say, Pastor Mike, I want to come back to the Lord. I want to make it like it was when I was first saved. I want to make things right. Maybe you denied Jesus just like Peter did. But you want to come back to the place where it's right with him once again. If that's your situation, we want to lead you in a prayer to restore that broken fellowship. If you'd like to be included in that prayer, please just raise your hand now. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes. Others, thank you. Good. Good. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Thank you. Are there others? I want to return to my heavenly father. Okay, one last invitation before we pray. That is the Bible speaks of, as we mentioned earlier, that there are two works of the Holy Ghost. The first is a work that brings salvation to us, a work that recreates us from within. It makes us a new creature in Christ Jesus. We become a child of God. The second work, Jesus said, was necessary for the disciples to have so that they could be witnesses of him, witnesses of his resurrection. He said, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Acts chapter 2 tells us when that happened. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost fell upon them and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I grew up in a denominational church and boy, that speaking with tongues stuff freaked me out. Until I found out what the Bible said about it. I heard what other people said and that scared me. But I saw that the Bible said that when we speak with other tongues, it's a supernatural means of communicating with God. It's a way of communicating with God that your head doesn't understand. It's a way of communicating with God that the devil doesn't understand. It's a means of spiritual power. It's a way to charge yourself up spiritually. I recognize that I needed that. I believe every child of God does. And it's for every person that names Jesus as the Lord of their lives. So if you're here this morning with say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to be filled with the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. I'm going to invite you to raise your hand right where you are so we'll know to pray for you as well. Yes. All across the room. Good, good, good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. To those of you that have lifted your hands on any of these invitations, or if you didn't lift your hand but you know you should have, I'm talking to you too. I'm going to ask you and only you, if you raised your hand on any of these invitations, only you to, re- to open your eyes and look up here at me i want to talk to you specifically i want to give you some specific instructions i told you that by raising your hands you are asking for prayer that's exactly what we're going to do we're going to pray for you but you can well understand that with people that have raised their hands to receive different things it'd be difficult for us to do it all at one time here in front of everybody so here's what i'm going to ask you to do i'm going to ask you to go to a side room a prayer room where you can be prayed for individually I want to ask you to gather your belongings. Get your Bible. Get your purse. If you came with someone you want them to go with you, just tap them on the shoulder. They'll be more than happy to go, I'm sure. But gather your belongings and make your way over to where this gentleman is standing. He's got his hand up. He's to my right and to your left. You see him over there? He's going to lead you to the prayer room. It will take just a moment. While you're there in the prayer room, we're going to be receiving communion to finish out the service. So you won't be late. If you came with others, they won't have to wait for you. We'll take care of all these things at one time. So I'm going to ask you, if you raise your hand on any of these invitations to be saved, to be restored to fellowship, or to be filled with the Holy Ghost, please stand where you are now and make your way out from where you're sitting over to where this gentleman is. He's going to lead you to the prayer room. This is a very important time. Don't let the devil talk you out of what you've already decided. Please make your way to where he is now, if you will. We'll wait for you. We'll give you time to get there. We want you to get everything the Lord has for you. Thank you so much for choosing to make God first in your life. Hallelujah. All right, those of you in the congregation, let's all stand together. While you're standing, we want to pray for these that are going to the prayer room. Stretch your hands out this way, if you will. Father, in the name of Jesus. We thank you for these that have chosen to give of themselves to you, to give their lives to you, to commit more of themselves to you, to receive the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that from this day forward, nothing will ever be the same for them again. Thank you that they will be conscious of your life, your presence, and your power in a way that they've never known before. In the precious name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for giving the prayer room workers utterance to say just the right words in just the right way, But, Lord, we're not trusting in anybody else's words. We thank you for your presence in that room that changes people's hearts and lives. In Jesus' precious name. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. We'll invite you to take your seats again for just a moment while we receive communion. Before we have the gentleman come to serve you, I want to present something to you. And that is this. The Bible says that we're to examine ourselves whenever we approach the Lord's table. That means the communion table. Paul said, by the Holy Ghost, as often as we eat of this bread and drink this cup, we show the Lord's death till he comes. That's an interesting way to say that. He didn't say we will remember the Lord's life. He said we will show the Lord's death till he comes. Somebody used this analogy one time. I really don't like it, but I don't, know, I don't have a better one. If we were to recall the life of Abraham Lincoln and the great things that he did for America. If we were to recall the life of John F. Kennedy, who some consider to be a great president in his own right. If we were to consider their lives or remember them, we would think of the things that they did in their lives. But we would not celebrate the fact that they were assassinated and murdered. The Bible says communion is about remembering Jesus' death. The fact that he shed his blood for you. It doesn't say remember his miracles. It doesn't say it's the way to remember. That he did great things and healed the sick. It says it's a remembrance of his death. This communion table. Is a reminder. And is supposed to be a constant reminder to us. Of the price. That your life cost. Which was the blood of Jesus. When you think of it in those terms. It's easy to see why the Bible says that we should examine ourselves. Are we living worthy of his life? Are we living worthy of his blood? Are we living worthy of what it cost Jesus to provide life for you and me? Gentlemen, will you come forward, please?